0: Tonight I wanted to speak about mindfulness. And I know Sharon mentioned the other night about repetition. And <laughs> I'm very aware that for all of you who sat the first six weeks, that if we're doing our job correctly, you've already heard a lot about mindfulness. And there is no advanced mindfulness <laughs> training. so, <laughs> But it's so basic. And it's what we need to work with over and over again. And I would like to remind us of one quality that happens, one thing that tends to happen when mindfulness is present. It's as if we experience things for the first time. So it it allows the mind to be fresh, open, and available. And so I encourage us all to listen in this way tonight. There's a very famous quote from Ajahn Chah. There's actually a book titled after it, A Still Forest Pool. And I'd like to share this quote with you tonight. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see so many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha." I wanted to read this quote for a couple of reasons. The first being that I think it's a very beautiful image the power of mindfulness in it we find the qualities of mindfulness that help to create this still forest pool we find when mindfulness is present there is a non-reactivity in the mind non-judgment non-analysis non-identification there is a simple acceptance of whatever appears in the pool. All of these qualities allow the pool to be unwavering, undistracted. Even the image in itself can be quite calming to bring to mind. The second reason I wanted to share this quote was because it was particularly poignant for me recently on my own retreat. I mentioned the other morning that I sat a self-retreat for about five weeks, and this retreat was up in the mountains of Vermont. I sat in a cabin where for the whole time that I was there, I didn't see another human being. It was for me a really rare opportunity in life. But it didn't mean that I was alone. I found many creatures coming and staring into the still forest pool. There were squirrels, porcupines, deer, coyotes, a mouse, chipmunks, uh, just to name a few, many kinds of birds. And this was really who I shared my retreat with. And they came and they peered in my pool. And something struck me about this. I know Ajahn Chah wasn't speaking literally when he came out with this quote, but it (laughs) resonated in the world I was living. Because when I hear this quote and bring it to mind, often the picture is so peaceful. And these beautiful animals come up and they stare into the pool one at a time. They come in perfect harmony and at ease. And yet, what I noticed happening in the pool where I was was that there was many animals, and they were screeching. It wasn't always peaceful. (laughs) The cabin itself I stayed in, the roof of it at times sounded like it had a highway running over the top of it. And sometimes there was battles up there. Sometimes it was a slaughterhouse. There was um, some birds that used to kill their prey up there. And uh, then every day I would sit on my balcony, and I nicknamed it Rodent Alley. <laughs> it was really an alleyway for a number of squirrels running back and forth. <laughs> and they were, they were characters. One in particular had this technique when he would go to run past me that he was very bold and brave. So he would charge at me till he got about two inches away, and then he'd veer off. <laughs> One day he became so bold that he came and started shredding the mat that I was sitting on. What I was reminded of is that really, nature is really peaceful and calm when we look at it on a postcard. (laughs) 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 Or sometimes we can view it from inside a building that has walls a foot-thick, double-paned windows, and a heavily insulated roof. And then we can look outside and go, oh yes, it's so peaceful. And yet, when we go and sit in the midst of it, forget it. <laughs> it's alive <laughs> and chaotic. And, you know, it just reminded me of, how when we picture the still forest pool and if we have this really calm, peaceful image, then when we sit down and we start getting visitors in our mind that are aggressive, angry, um, just wild creatures turning up, we start to think we're doing something wrong we start to think that we aren't able to do this practice. And yet the mindfulness has that power that any creature can turn up, and we can simply greet it, we can meet it, that we can find the place of stillness and undistractedness in the meeting of it. I have to admit that at one point I saw myself sitting there on Rodent Alley, all of these visitors coming by, and I remembered the three-month retreat and just how still it gets in the hall. And I realized that many times in my life I meditated with rodents, and I wondered what my karma could possibly be. (laughs) But it's to bring this practice to all places in life. <laughs> so tonight, talking about some of these qualities that mindfulness have has that makes it so strong, that makes it such a good friend to have. You know, the Buddha once called it one fortunate attachment. It's a a factor of mind that we can really invite into our lives and spend time cultivating and developing. And all the time that we spend doing this is sure to be a worthwhile cause. So what is mindfulness? Mindfulness. Mindfulness is being able to turn our attention to any experience of this body and mind without adding anything to the experience or taking anything away from it. It is a presence of mind, an attentiveness of mind really connecting with the simplicity of mindfulness, to simply connect with the experiences of body and mind. When mindfulness is present, its characteristic in the mind is not wobbling, or not floating away from the object of mindfulness. It may be that there are rapid successions of changing objects in the mind. But when mindfulness is present, there is a steadiness that can connect with these changing experiences. The mind is undistracted. And because of this, there is an absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. It that it enables us to see things just as they are. Mindfulness also provides protection or guardianship. And mindfulness is present when there is strong perception. Because mindfulness is able to see things just as they are, without adding anything to it or taking anything from away from it, it has a mirror-like presence. The simple recognition of what is happening. Mindfulness is able to do this because it is non-conceptual. It's not based upon our ideas, our beliefs, our views of the way things should be. It's a direct meeting with experience. Bear of all these concepts that we so often overlay on experience. Within this, we find that there are two ingredients to mindfulness. The first is is the active ingredient of mindfulness, which is the turning the mind towards the experience, to bring to mind or to bear in mind. And this is accompanied by the second ingredient, which is a passive ingredient. And this is where we are able to see things just as they are. We are probably all aware of how, with the first ingredient of mindfulness, the bringing the mind or bearing in mind, the most difficult aspect of this is the memory to remember. Our habits of mind often have us dreaming or fantasizing about the future or we get entangled in events that happened in the past and often forget even where we are, what we're doing. You know, it happens not just here as we sit on the cushion, but in our daily lives, where so often we are simply not present to the experience in the present moment. And so we need to cultivate This memory to remember, this memory to come back, to connect right now. It's probably happened to most of us that we have gone through a stage in our practice where we were horrified to discover just how much of the time we are lost. You know, for those of you who may have just come, you may have sat for even the first day thinking you were being somewhat mindful uh, a lot of the time, and then suddenly you start to notice there's more and more times when we're lost. And we might start to think that the, um, we're getting worse in the practice. When it can be that actually we're just starting to notice how much of the time we are lost. And this in itself is a great insight because this is where we begin to plant the seeds of mindfulness. We begin to plant this memory to remember, this willingness to come back. Our practice becomes so much easier if from this place we don't judge ourselves harshly, we don't beat ourselves over the head saying, oh, you stupid idiot, here you are, lost again. But we simply recognize this as a moment of awakening, turning it from a moment of being lost to a moment of connecting again. And this comprises our practice. We do this over and over and over and over and over and over again. In a retreat setting, there are a few things that we can do to help support this memory to remember, this memory to come back. Just throughout the day, the postures can help to remind us. When we're sitting here, oftentimes I've noticed that you know if I become lost in thought, then suddenly there's an awareness of sitting, and oh yeah, meditating, oh yeah, come back. It might be a process, but it gets me back to the moment. The same is true in walking meditation. You know, if we pick a track and we walk back and forth, that um, track becomes a, a form in which we're working, which helps to remind us, you know, that when we again discover we're lost and then come back, just the act of walking back and forth helps us to remember that we are trying to cultivate mindfulness. Trying to come back. If we're standing, and I would like to encourage you, if you've not already experimented with standing meditation, to do this at times, whether it be in times when you're sleepy, or just sometimes maybe standing outside and simply standing, continuing the practice of being mindful of body and mind. And, you know, just Simply standing is not something we do a lot in our daily lives. You know, Often we're on the go. So the the standing posture also helps us to remember. If we're a person who for some reason needs to practice sometimes laying down, it can be really helpful just to have the arm up. And then it it tends to happen if we drift off, the arm comes down. (coughs) And it becomes a reminder once again to come back so just these you know, four very basic postures can help us to remember. It can also support the memory to remember by slowing down. You know, life moves at a different pace here. And we can make a conscious effort to slow down. This helps support mindfulness in becoming more precise. It helps us to keep a continuity. One caution around this, and I don't want to set up in any way that uh, mindfulness only happens when we're moving slowly, because this is not the case. And if it were uh, what we were trying to set up, then it would mean that we're doing a practice that we can only do in a very limited way. But the truth is we're just working in unique conditions here, and slowing down can be really helpful in uh, strengthening mindfulness. When we do so, to do it in a way that we're not forcing or straining to slow down, but it more has the sense of simply settling back and relaxing into the receptivity of receiving the unfolding of our experience. As we move into daily activities, the challenge to remember becomes more difficult. And that's where it can be helpful to um, pick certain activities that we do during the day, such as brushing our teeth, taking a shower, Mm -hmm. going to the toilet, whatever it might be, and really make a conscious effort to include it in our practice. Now sometimes we think, oh yeah, I'll be mindful all day, but that becomes such a huge period of time, and we start to feel discouraged when we can't actually do it. So if we can put some touchstones in our daily activities, it can be really helpful. And at those times, it's pausing before we begin the activity, collecting the energy, and strengthening the motivation to remember inside the staff dining room on the door that connects to the front foyer there there's a little sign that says the pause that remembers and that's really you know any activity that we can bring that pause to that reminds us to bring a care to the doing of that activity Mental noting can also be a strong support to the memory to remember. I'd like to speak just a little bit about noting. I know it's not a technique or tool that we all use, and it is really just that, a tool of practice, and not the essence of practice. But it is a tool that can be very helpful. In my own practice, I noticed that it was very helpful in turbulent waters, when strong emotions were arising. That by bringing in noting, it helped to bring in that non-judgmental awareness. That could enable me to stay with the changing process. With noting practice, at times, it will help us to see when maybe we have disconnected. This can be at times where we might be walking, noting right, left, right, left. And then suddenly we notice, as we're noting left, we put the right foot down. Or those times in practice, we're noting rising, falling, rising, falling. And as we note falling, we experience rising. No, it just becomes an indicator, points to, helps us to see that we have disconnected in some way. Sometimes the tone of the noting might help us to realize that there's something present that we're not seeing. You know, I've noticed this in times where aversion has slipped in, and I might thinking that I'm just connecting with experience, and then suddenly I realize that the noting is actually screaming, <laughs> and I, it points towards the fact that there's a version that hasn't, I haven't become aware of. There will be times when we may be really struggl- struggling with this memory to remember. Times when maybe our experience is so painful, we don't want to come back. Why do we want to feel this? No, and so we move into the habits of mind, habits of disconnection, habits of getting lost in some fantasy that will take us away from the situation we find ourselves in. And at these times, we will find the need to have compassion, which has been spoken about in the last few days, where we really hold the totality of this experience with a care. So we start to bring a caring attention to the experience. And we let this be infused by our motivation for practice why it is that we practice. And all of us must have come here with some sense of a deep caring, because this really isn't a practice you do for the fun of it. (laughs) It doesn't have that appeal. So, you know, there is some strong motivation that brought each one of us here. And so at those times when we're struggling with this memory to remember, we can take a moment to reflect on what is our motivation and letting the energy of that motivation infuse the attention that we bring to our practice. The joyful aspect Of learning to bring mindfulness to these really painful experiences is that we learn to shine the torch of awareness on what have been the shadows and demons in our minds. We learn to bring these shadows and demons out into full light, and it dispels all of the fantasies, all of the images, all of the delusion that may have been present with these mind states or experiences. It helps us to live our lives in the light of awareness. This, uh, so this is talking about the first ingredient of mindfulness, the memory to remember. And the second ingredient of the mindfulness being the passive quality of seeing things just as they are. Now this is where the mind is non-reactive. It's not clinging. It's not trying to change or fabricate or do anything with this experience. There's the quality of acceptance that is so rich. We find that we are no longer at sea with the changing experiences of life. In our lives, so often, we feel bounced around by what is happening. What happens to us, what arises in our mind, our body, it feels so turbulent at times. And mindfulness, this receptive quality, helps bring the steadiness, the acceptance. I remember back to my first retreat where, you know, there were so many moments when I wasn't mindful. And then there would just be a moment of hearing or a moment of seeing or a moment of touching. And it was so simple. It was such a relief. You know, I would have this sense as if I'd been lost in a jungle and suddenly I stepped out into a clearing. So it can be a great relief when we experience moments of mindfulness. We'll notice this at times in our practice when we can be with pleasant experience in just the same way. We can be with unpleasant experience. You know, Kamala spoke this morning about how we could be with experience as if it were a bird song. That when mindfulness is present, we aren't chasing after the pleasant, or we aren't pushing away the unpleasant. It's really bringing their attention to our experience. Their attention that is so freeing, that relieves us of so much of the burden that we carry. The Buddha, whom I'm sure you probably agree with me, was such a wise man, (laughs) um, talked about how we could learn to bring mindfulness to any aspect of our experience. And he described this in the way of developing what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. The first of these foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. We tend to work with this a lot in our practice. We work with it when we're using the breath as our anchor, when we're opening to body sensations, when we're walking, eating, There's many times throughout the day where we use the body as our anchor. It's a foundation of mindfulness that is readily available and accessible to us. So it makes a lot of sense to work a lot with this foundation of mindfulness. The body also happens to be the place where when we uh, look at the body or feel the body, we tend to think that it's our body we tend to strongly identify with this body. So it becomes very valuable to pay close attention to the body in its changing elements. The second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And when it's expressed as mindfulness of feelings, it doesn't refer to feelings as we usually think of them, as being emotions or mind states. It's referring to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality that is present in each experience. It's a very important aspect of experience to become aware of because so much of our habits of mind are moving towards the pleasant, moving away from the unpleasant, and simply spacing out when uh, experience is neither pleasant or unpleasant. By learning to be mindful of this foundation, we learn to be with pleasant experience and simply know it as pleasant experience. Without thinking, we have to hang on to it. Without grasping onto it or clinging we, we can allow it to arise and pass away again and with unpleasant experience we also see into the changing nature of this unpleasant experience. You now in our, our lives the habit is so strong when things aren't right, I'm out of here. You no know, we just go I mean even in our daily lives simple things such as, we're sitting somewhere and we feel an unpleasant sensation without thinking about it what we'll do is we'll move and the sad part is that we often live our life this way and so it means when we face difficulty (laughs) out of here difficulty relationship out of here no we just we don't take the time to stay and it can we see as we're sitting how many mind states arise and pass away again and yet if we don't pay attention here we change the whole direction of our life on what could have been a real momentary arising. So bringing this mindfulness brings a real spaciousness to our lives where we can start to make wise decisions, (coughs) where we aren't just run on this habit of moving towards, moving away from, or spacing out. And when you know we have this habit of spacing out, you know when things aren't so stimulating, um, we move into disconnection. We also can create the habit of wanting to seek out a high or a low, and we, you know we can get really addicted to a life of intensity. But by learning to be present, wakeful, alert, when experience is not so us strong. It allows us to stay awake, alert, and not dependent upon changing conditions. It can be a whole new way of life. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind or consciousness. In being mindful of consciousness, we include the knowing quality of mind, and the different colorations of consciousness. Now, so often, consciousness is colored by greed, hatred, delusion. So we begin to see these different colorations. It's very important, too, because when we don't detect these colorations of consciousness, they become the lens through which we view life. Now, this is really (laughs) easy to see in, say, anger is present and we haven't recognized it. And what starts to happen is we might start judging everything according to this filter. We're irritated and um, it may compound into acting out this anger. We start nourishing the seeds of anger when we're not mindful of it. When we become mindful of it, we totally shift our relationship to it. We become conscious. We start to see how we feed it. We bring a presence and spaciousness to the experience. The last foundation of mindfulness is (coughs) mindfulness of dhammas. This is often translated as mind objects, this tends to create some confusion, as in mindfulness of dhammas, we are not only being mindful of objects that are mental, but also a physical experience. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who recently translated the Samyutta Nikaya, translated mindfulness of dhammas as mindfulness of phenomena. In the suttas, when there's the description of mindfulness of dhammas, what we find is that there are a number of lists that the Buddha gave. In these lists that appear in mindfulness of dhammas, we find that we learn to pay attention to the hindrances, to the five aggregates or the five places of clinging, to the seven factors of enlightenment, We begin to pay attention to the experiences that we have through our sense doors. This begins to culminate in a deep understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And don't think that you have to remember all of these lists to be mindful of dhammas. Because what happens when we do this practice is that we begin to see things just as they are. And this is what this foundation of mindfulness points towards. We begin to understand the function of these different aspects of experience. I would like to share with you something from the Samyutta Nikaya that expresses just how important the Buddha thought the establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness is. I really want to share something of the suttas with you because I know for myself, in sitting self-retreats, that um, when there's no teacher available, I often turn towards the suttas for uh, my inspiration. And something that I've come to see is that they can have this bolt of lightning type effect on me. I I experienced it in my last retreat where it was the second day of my retreat and it was the end of the day and I was starting to whimper a little bit. And so I thought, okay, read a sutta. I read a sutta and I don't remember which one it was at this time but I read the sutta and it had that bolt-like effect and all of a sudden it was like, okay, cut the whimpering, cut the sniveling, get on with it. And, you know, why I find that is because the Buddha, through his immense compassion, was so uncompromising in um, encouraging us to be true to our hearts and minds, true to ourselves in bringing forth the light of truth. It was uncompromising. And you know, he kept saying, If it was was not if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. And so for me he the suttas can often bring about a lot of inspiration. And so I share this one with you about the importance of the four foundations of mindfulness. Or it's actually part of a sutta. going back to the time of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha. Thus have I heard. On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove and at the Pindaka's Park. Then a certain Brahman approached the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to the Blessed One. Master Gautama, what is the cause and reason why the true Dhamma does not endure long after a Buddha has attained final nib- Nibbana? And what is the cause and the reason why the true Dhamma endures long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbana? It is Brahman because the four establishments of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated, that the true Dhamma does not endure long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbāna. And it is because the four establishments of mindfulness are developed and cultivated that the true Dhamma endures long after a Buddha has attained final Nibbāna. For myself, in reading that, it was quite powerful. One thing that came to mind was the feeling of responsibility, wanting to keep the true Dhamma alive in the world. It's all of our responsibilities to keep this light alive. You know, so often, When we look at the problems of the world, the complexities of the world, we can feel at a loss as to what to do. And here in these teachings, we find something that we can do that can be for the highest good, that can be to keep the light of truth alive in the world. The other part that I was struck by in reading the sutta was that it seemed possible. He's talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the practice that we're doing. You know, it to me said, I didn't have to have a PhD in Buddhist studies. I didn't have to know the deep secret teachings of Buddhism. That what I could do was simply to continue on with diligence in my practice. So learning to work with these four foundations of mindfulness. Remembering that they are all just aspects of the experience of this body and mind. And that we can bring mindfulness in at any point in our lives mindfulness is greatly strengthened and becomes more penetrating when we link one moment of mindfulness with another and this is called the continuity of mindfulness we begin first by staying steady in our efforts to return to the breath, to return to sensations of movement in walking. And then we work with continuity by remaining mindful as we move from one activity to the other, as we move from sitting to walking, as we move from walking to eating, as we move from eating to drinking a cup of tea, as we move to um, showering, taking care of ourselves, learning to bring mindfulness in a continual way to our experience. A big key for working with continuity of mindfulness is to remember we can only do it one moment at a time. When we have the wisdom to bring mindfulness to all of the things we do in a day, we are able to do so because we truly understand that one experience is no more important than another, which is something that tends to be hard to believe at times when our experiences are exhilarating or the way we like them. But that any experience we can bring this mindfulness to. It, it can come from the place of care and respect. When we do this, it brings about a great intimacy in our lives. Zen Master Dogen was, was, was once asked, what is the nature of the awakened mind? And he responded by saying, to be intimate with all things. And this is what happens when we bring this care and respect to any activity that we do in the day. This is a poem that expresses to me this intimacy. It's by John Moffat. It's called To Look at Anything. To look at anything, if you would know that thing, you must look at it long, To look at this green and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. You must be the dark snakes of stems and the ferny plumes of leaves. You must enter into the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time and touch the very peace they issue from. This poem reminded me of my retreat. Now, as many of you, I was sitting in the peak of autumn, watching the changes, watching the leaves turn color, things fall, the animals scurrying. As we all know, it's such a beautiful time of the year here. At some point on my retreat, I just kind of reflected. On what it was like to sit in autumn and i had such a strong sense that i was autumn that autumn had lived through all of my sense doors it had been known in a changing process and this is what happens with this intimacy with mindfulness that we have the sense of life flowing through us not belonging to us but bearing witness to this amazing journey. Mindfulness is also known for its protective quality. And this protective quality operates in a couple of different ways. It helps us because we pay attention to what we're doing we begin to see actions which lead to suffering and actions which lead to the alleviation of suffering we learn to abandon those actions that lead to further suffering so it helps us to it helps to protect us from harming ourselves and it helps us to be protected from harming others When we practice mindfulness, we see how deeply entwined we are. We see that what we do and say has an effect on the world around us. We begin to see how what happens in the world around us has an effect. I mean, we can see it in the most simple way of just how much we can be affected by the wa- weather. You know, it can at times affect our moods, it affects the way we dress. It might affect what we do. It can um, have an impact on our day. We also really get a sense of it in the stillness of this retreat. Many people who sat the first half of the retreat expressed how deeply impacted they were just to have people leaving and new people coming. The people who came into the retreat expressed what an effect it had on them to walk into a hall that was so still and so silent. You know, in many different ways, we begin to experience how the world around us affects us. And so mindfulness helps us to see this and then to move from a place of heedfulness, a place of caring. It really helps us to bring an impeccability into our life because it is continually guiding us, continually giving us feedback. It helps us to move towards living a life of non-harming. Mindfulness is also considered a protector because it works in conjunction with many other factors of mind. One example of this is it works in conjunction with, with what's called the five spiritual faculties. These are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And one of the ways that mindfulness protects is that when it is present, we begin to see when the other factors may be moving out of balance, when... One is diminishing. An example of this could be that we're sitting, and that there may be uh, a strong concentration beginning to develop. But that concentration uh, might not be balanced with energy, and so we start feeling quite sluggish or sleepy within the concentration. We get what's called sinking mind. And when when mindfulness is present, then we, we begin to see this, and we recognize that the factor of energy is not present. And just often in the simple recognition of this, it has an energizing quality in itself. So mindfulness, helping to protect us both in our actions, in our thoughts, helping to protect us from thoughts that lacerate or pierce the mind. We begin to see difficult mind states arise, and we learn to not nourish them, not feed them. And in this way, mindfulness protects us. And mindfulness supporting us in the cultivation and development of factors of mind that lead to awakening, Mindfulness is actually said to be the master key, the key through which we come to know the mind. In coming to know the mind, we begin to see that which leads towards suffering and that which leads towards the end of suffering. We discover through mindfulness the path to free the mind. In speaking about mindfulness, I would like to stress the simplicity of mindfulness. During a long retreat like this, we often hear of many, many different skillful means. And these skillful means can be very helpful. I do not want to diminish them in any way, but I do know, and I know it from having watched my own practice, that we can become obsessive with these skillful means that we can get into manipulating our experience continually it's as if we become <coughs> excuse me a master navigator of a spaceship which if we're only manipulating our experience continually is will find is tied to the launch pad we find that the very tools that we're using to free our mind can actually start to bind the mind. So in our practice to remember, mindfulness is simple. In a moment of seeing, to no seeing. In a moment of tasting, to no tasting. In a moment of touching, to no touching. In a moment of thinking, to no thinking. It's really dropping into presence, dropping into awareness, alertness. In the retreat that I did, just did, there was a phrase that helped me to remember this over and over again. I used the phrase, just this, just this. It helped me to be with the experience in a very simple way, that just this doesn't mean I had to do anything, didn't mean I had to perfect anything, didn't mean I could expect anything. I was just turning towards the simplicity of just this. It also didn't mean that if the experience was unpleasant, that I had to move into enduring this state. It didn't mean that I had to fight it in any way. It only meant that for one moment I could open to just this. It also didn't allow me to cling or to want to hang on to experience because it kept reminding me this. It's a really wonderful arena that we have this opportunity to practice in right now. Where we can settle back, the demands that are made upon us are very simple. Know that there isn't a lot that we have to do in a day. So we can settle into moments of just walking, just sipping a cup of tea, just standing, just seeing. This brings about the steadiness of mind that is able to open to all aspects of experience. It allows all of the creatures that we find appearing in our minds to be held not to be rejected, to be accepted. It allows us to come in contact with the still forest pool. So let's just sit for a moment. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere.